With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. There is so much BS out there. I mean, there's like a trillion dollars worth of BS out there. And by that, I mean, people are making arguments all the time. Basically, people or businesses are trying to convince you of things, and they'll do whatever it takes to convince you, no matter how badly they're lying. So for instance, back in 2006, if a bank wanted you to buy a house, they would say some BS thing like, everybody who's successful owns a house, or housing prices only go up. So this was all BS, and it was arguments they would use to try to make you buy a house, and the arguments were very convincing. I mean, so many people bought houses at ridiculous prices that it created a whole financial collapse. Right now, we have a lot of arguing in politics, like particularly around things like the coronavirus. Like on one side, Trump will say, oh, there would have been millions of deaths if I wasn't around. And on the other hand, the Democrats would say there would have been zero deaths if we had been president. And so you have to ask yourself, does what they're claiming, does it make sense? Does it sound true? But then how do you prove such a statement and how do you, what's the best way to either prove such a statement, argue such a thing, or call BS on it? A lot of people have written about this, but I kind of want to summarize. There's a, there's a chapter written by Carl Sagan. It's a chapter from the book, The Demon Haunted World. And the subtitle is Science is a Candle in the Dark. And he has a chapter called The Fine Art of Baloney Detection, which is basically how people argue deceptively he also gives a bunch of strategies for proving that something is either baloney or not. And then he gives a bunch of ways you shouldn't argue. They're, they're, they're sort of baloney ways to argue. And I kind of experienced a lot of this in the past couple of weeks. So basically for the past 20 years, I've experienced this quite a bit. But in the past few weeks, I made this argument about New York City is dead. I'm not going to talk about that article at all, but just... What I noticed was is that all the people who were arguing with me were arguing in using a lot of these techniques that Carl Sagan talks about as sort of bad ways to argue. So let's get right into it. 
that basically if you want to prove something is either baloney or not baloney, he gives these nine tools and then we'll talk about the tools he gives for arguing. By the way, I'll, I just want to mention uh, Maria Popova in the excellent blog Brain Pickings reprinted some of these ideas from Carl Sagan, and but I'm going to go a little bit more deeply into them with some examples and stories and so on. So the book is The Demon Haunted World, and the chapter specifically, which after reading Maria's article, I read the full chapter. It's called The Fine Art of Baloney Detection. And the chapter really resonated with me because we're, we all have been experiencing so much BS lately in every aspect of our lives, whether it's personal relationships, whether it's the media and the virus or politicians or, you know, uh, other kinds of pseudoscience or business, you know, how many times in my emails all day long, every day, do I get some kind of BS email, like sign up for our seminar and you'll learn how to, I don't know, network better with people or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the fine art of baloney detection. So if you're going to argue with somebody one way or the other, you're trying to prove something or you're trying to prove that something is BS, then the first thing to take note of is whenever possible, there must be independent confirmation of the facts. So that's number one, independent confirmation of the facts. So if I say people have been leaving New York City over the past 20 years, okay, it's easy to say that. And it's easy to show facts for that. I could show results from the 2000 census, 2010 census, and 2020 census. And it turns out if I had said, oh, everybody's leaving New York, the facts would disagree with me. Because uh, in 2010, uh, the population was lower than probably what the 2020 census will show. So if somebody says to me, oh, New York's losing, or, or United States is losing population, well, let's just look at what the 20. 10 census is and what the 2020 census says, you'll see that the U.S. probably grew by 5 million people. So that, that, it, that's BS then if someone says that to me. So when I was arguing New York City is dead forever, I had to make an argument that, oh, the, this is the number of restaurants that are closed. This is uh, the number of people who are showing up for work every day. You know, I say, I made a statement such as, um, People are going working remote because bandwidth is higher. Well, I can show as a fact that here's what the rate of bandwidth was in 2008. Here's what the rate of bandwidth is now. And so that's how I would prove that argument that I was making. So number two, encourage substantive debate on the evidence by knowledgeable proponents of all points of view. So if I'm going to say, I actually don't really, I can't really think of a, a good example of this one, but uh, let me think about it for a second. So let's say people are arguing about climate change. Now, whether you believe in climate change or not has nothing to do with this, by the way. I'm not going to state an opinion about what you should do. I would say, you know, there's a lot of different aspects of climate change science. So what does it mean for the climate to change? You know, some people might say that the climate always changes. So in the 1800s, there's one argument that in the 1800s, we had a mini ice age. So now things are heating up because we're rebounding from that mini ice age. So that's one point of view. Another point of view might be, oh, the temperatures are higher now than they've been in the past 10,000 years. So it doesn't even matter that we had a mini ice age 150 years ago. So you want 
to have many points of view. And if there are too many points of view, then it's hard to make a big judgment that this is true. You know, there's lots of things that are up for debate and there's no solid conclusion. So for instance, do does lower taxes increase the prosperity of a country? I think it's unclear. I think there's examples in both cases and there's not uh, one evidence that says yes and there's not one piece of evidence that says no. Okay, the third thing, don't always listen to arguments from authority. So Carl Sagan specifically says, arguments from authority carry little weight. Authorities have made mistakes in the past. So a great example is um, the guy who discovered germ theory. So I don't know if you know this story. You might know the story. We've talked about it on the podcast occasionally. So there was this hospital in the 1800s, like around 1840 or 1850, um, uh, where women who were giving birth to children were dying a, a, a much larger percentage of them were dying than in other hospitals, other medical facilities. And nobody could figure out why. Why were all these women dying in childbirth? And this one doctor, Igor Semmelweis, he basically said the same doctors who dealt with dying, like forensic doctors, were also involved in childbirth. So these doctors were going straight from the morgue where people died of like gruesome horrible, contagious diseases. And they were, you know, obviously touching the mothers and transmitting diseases that they picked up in the morgue to the mothers and the mothers were dying. And so Igor Semmelweis, he basically said, hey, everybody, why don't we test this out? We'll wash our hands first and see what happens. And so doctors started doing this and suddenly none of the women would die anymore. It's because the doctors were washing off the germs. This was the beginning of germ theory where Semmelweis realized, oh, diseases are basically this collection of germs that could jump from one body to another. And so when you wash your hands, you were disinfecting yourself from the germs so less women would die. But here's the thing. Even despite this experiment, none of the doctors agreed with him. They actually hated him. They forced him eventually to quit his job as a doctor. I think he ended up dying in a mental institution. He was so upset. Of course, now we know he was correct. But what this shows is that authority sometimes doesn't always know. Like before Galileo, for instance, most people thought that the sun rotated around the earth. He proved all the authorities wrong. And then we started to believe that the earth revolved around the sun instead. So just because someone's on an authority, if they don't have facts or they don't have a good kind of experiment to prove their hypothesis, it doesn't matter how much of an authority they are. It doesn't matter if they're the biggest scientists in the world. It doesn't matter if they're president of the United States. Nothing matters. Authorities have made mistakes in the past. They will make mistakes in the future. Now, this doesn't mean that you should be anti-science or anti-authority, but it just means that just because, I mean, look, Albert Einstein initially thought the universe was infinite and, you know, didn't move. And now it turns out that probably the correct theory is the Big Bang Theory, that the universe came from some small, infinitesimally small, you know, atom-sized universe that blew up and created the universe we're in now. So Einstein was a great authority, but he didn't know what he was talking about when he was talking about the origin of the universe.
If someone says, oh, you know, four out of five dentists say Crest is the best toothpaste, well, all you know about that is that four out of five dentists said something. You don't know if it's true or not. Number four, spin more than one hypothesis. So, uh, well, like, let's say you're trying to prove that a business idea is good. I'm working on a, a business right now, and the business idea sort of seemed obvious to me in the beginning. And uh, so I have to ask myself, and I'll tell you the business. Well, I'm trying to make podcast software that records video on both sides and records audio on both sides, the listener, uh, you know, both people on the podcast and stitches the video together. So you have perfect audio and perfect video uh, at the end. And so why hasn't someone done this before? It doesn't seem like rocket science. So I have to come up with a bunch of theories like, oh, maybe the programming is harder than I think, or maybe, you know, some of the web browsers don't allow this, or maybe people haven't really been trying it for that long. I have to come up with all these different theories about why this idea hasn't been created before. And then I try to prove or disprove them. So don't get too easily convinced by one theory, why something happens. There has to be many theories. And then you see, you might not prove any of them, but the one that is hardest to disprove might be the, the real reason. So number five, this is a critical one. This is one of the most critical ones. I, number one, by the way, was uh, uh, you have to have independent confirmation of the facts. That's the most important. But I would say this is the second most important. Try not to get overly attached to a hypothesis just because it's yours. So whenever I come up with a business idea and I start working on it, I always think, oh my God, this is the best business idea in the world. I'm going to make billions with this. If just... If just, and then I start doing all this weird math. Like if just 1% of everybody in China buys my smart refrigerator, I'm going to make a billion dollars. Well, I call this the smoking crack bias. A great example of it is when I say, oh, it's financially a bad decision to buy a house. Here's the math. A lot of people will come up with outrageous arguments. And by the way, you, it's possible to argue against my statement that you should never buy a house. But usually people come up with the most outrageous arguments like, oh, it's better for children to have uh, to not have to move so much, or it's better for children if you own a house, or, it's, or housing prices never go down, so it's a good investment to own a house. So there's all these outrageous things that people say, but they don't prove it or they can't prove it. And so why do they do this? Why are they so convinced? Why are people so convinced that they're right? And I, I, by the way, I'm not making the argument right now not to buy a house. I'm just saying, why do people give really bad arguments when they're trying to prove something and they're convinced that they're right? It's because it's called a sunken cost fallacy or investment bias. If you put a lot of time or money into something, your brain is more likely to think, oh, I must be correct because I put a lot of time into this. So I must know what I'm doing. I would never do something so stupid if it wasn't true. So another big, uh, another big issue. You can find it's great to argue or to throw up a hypothesis that will drive everyone completely insane. So if you're saying, "Oh, it's a never a good idea to go to college," now I happen to mostly believe that. But people will get if people went to college and I went to college, they will get so offended because they they, they think you're questioning all the decisions they made in life. The most, one, the two most important decisions you can make are, you know, should you buy a house or not? Because that's a huge financial decision. 
and should you go to college? Because not only is that a huge financial decision, it takes up four years of your life. So here's someone saying you shouldn't have gone to college, even if you don't even know whether you should have gone or not. Like people will make arguments, oh, you get a better job if you go to college. That was true if you went to college in the 70s or 80s. We just, we don't know if that's true now, but there's still statistical study after statistical study saying college is better for your career than if you don't go to college. All these scientists even are fooled by this bias. I've written about this. So again, try not to get attached to theories just because they're your theory. Uh, number six, very important one too. This is an important one for investing. It's quantify. This is what Carl Sagan says. If whatever it is you're explaining has some way to measure it, some numerical quantity attached to it, you'll be better able to discriminate among competing hypotheses if you can measure it. So for instance, this sometimes happens. Uh, somebody will come up to me and say, oh, Microsoft's down 10% because they have bad earnings. Should I buy Microsoft now? Uh, you, and they'll say something like, usually when Microsoft's down 10%, eventually it's, it's up. Well, don't just say that. Tell me the last 100 times Microsoft was down 10%, 98 times out of 100 or 80 times out of 100, Microsoft was up the next day. You can quantify that and you could prove it. Or, you know, if you say the world's been, you know, hotter every year for the past 20 years, every year the world is hotter than the year before, tell me how you're measuring that. Are you just measuring that at the North Pole? Are you just measuring that in the desert? Have you measured that all over the world and, and realized that was true all over the world? Like maybe some areas are hotter, maybe some areas are colder. Again, I'm not making an argument about climate change. If you're making decisions about very important things, you need to be able to quantify what you're saying. If I say people who go to college have better jobs later, well, what about people who went to college in 2018? They, I don't know if they have better jobs or not. They've, everybody's been quarantined, so you can't really prove that. Okay, this is a very important one. Occam's razor. So this one, I love this one. Basically, it says, when faced with two different theories that explain an idea or an event that happened or explain some piece of data, choose the simpler theory. So for instance, there's two theories that explain 9-11. One is that a bunch of terrorists took over some planes and crashed them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The other theory that I've heard is that the U.S. government destroyed the World Trade Center and the Pentagon so as to get everybody all agitated so that Bush could justify going to war in the Middle East. All right, those are two theories, and they both explain 9-11. But the second theory, the conspiracy one, thousands of people would have to be involved planning such a thing within the U.S. government. How did all those people keep such an amazing secret? It seems unlikely. The simpler solution, based on all the evidence that we have, is that, you know, there was a bunch of terrorists that took over three planes and they crashed them into um, the world. Two of them went into the World Trade Center. One of them went into the Pentagon. We hear their voices on the black box recordings of the planes. We've investigated, you know, the backgrounds of all these terrorists. And it's almost 99.999% chance. It's 100% chance it's true. I mean, we've proved it in every possible way. That's the simplest solution. And it's based on the data. So Occam's razor is always pick the simplest solution. And, you know, another conspiracy-related example of Occam's razor is the moon landing. 
Is it more likely that it was this huge conspiracy filmed in a Hollywood studio and there was never a moon landing? Or is it likely that they fired a rocket into space, just like they'd been firing rockets for 40 years at that point? And, you know, they figured out how to make the rockets more and more powerful. And, you know, there was a moon landing. It's much more likely that the simplest solution is that there was a moon landing. And again, not a conspiracy involving thousands of people, all of them who magically kept a secret. If an argument involves magical thinking, like all these people kept a secret, then it's probably not true. This is always happens to me. So let's say I'm dating and I know the girl I'm dating is going out to dinner with her ex-boyfriend and I send her texts and she never responds. And finally she responds at three in the morning. Well, you know, the simplest solution might be that something happened between her and her boyfriend. So if she says, oh, my battery ran out on the phone, sorry. And she says, and I didn't even realize it. That's unlikely because let's say I happen to know she checks her phone every 10 minutes. So it's unlikely she would have gone from till three in the morning uh, without checking her phone. So Occam's razor, something bad happened and the relationship is no good. You can see how paranoid I am. So let's say six of your friends go to a restaurant, three of you eat the chicken, three of you eat the fish. And then afterwards, everybody who ate the chicken is throwing up and is sick in their stomach. Well, you could say, well, we all got a stomach virus. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that we got food poisoning. That is the simpler solution because if you all got a stomach virus, why didn't the, uh, the three who ate the fish also get the stomach virus? So those are just different examples of Occam's razor. And I find it really easy to kind of get rid of just BS answers and theories and conspiracy theories. I mean, some conspiracies are true. So you want to make sure, even if you're a conspiracy theorist and you're prone to go along with conspiracies, that you at least get rid of all the, the BS conspiracies. And then here's, this is a very important one. This is Carl Sagan's last point about uh, how to prove or disprove baloney, which is always ask whether the hypothesis can be at least in principle falsified. So if you could prove something true, you also need to be able to prove something false before you completely believe it. So for instance, there's a whole field of science, a field which I actually am always interested in called evolutionary psychology. And it's the idea that a lot of our motivations are determined by evolution. So for instance, sometimes the evolutionary psychologists try to explain the reasons why men and women are attracted to each other. So let's say men tend to be attracted to women with longer hair and on average, not every man is attracted to the same thing, but let's say in general, and I don't know if this is true or not, but let's just say in general, men are attracted to women with longer hair and evolutionary psychologists might say, well, longer hair is more likely to be found among young women because survival of the fittest means that men and women want to have children and procreate. And so men tend to be more attracted to women who show signs of being more fertile, like for instance, longer hair. So that's how an evolutionary psychologist would describe that. But how would you disprove that? That's just a theory based on this idea that, you know, our psychology is determined in part by our evolution, but it's hard to disprove that. I could almost prove anything using evolutionary psychology. I talked earlier about, oh, if you go to college, 
you'll get a better job. You could only prove that with examples from the 70s or 80s or early 90s. I can't prove that with, you know, for all we know, the nature of college has changed. I can't falsify that with the latest data, i.e. data from like 2018 or 2019. So I can't really say that that's true or not. And there's many examples of people who didn't go to college who have great jobs. So if you can't prove something's false, then there's no point arguing it. Like it's not valid science. It's good to be skeptical over things that can't be proven false. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. 
hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So now let's go to part two of this, which is what are all the bad ways people argue things? And I've experienced just in the past few weeks, people have tried to use these all of these techniques with me when arguing about New York City is dead or, or not dead or whatever. So the first is, which you'll be very familiar with, is the ad hominem attacks. And what that means is, first off, ad hominem is Latin for to the man. And so that means someone's attacking the arguer and not the argument. So you're shooting the messenger instead of actually, you know, for instance, if I say uh, all these restaurants are closing, and so that means all this loss in tax revenues, and you just say, well, what do you know? You're not, you're just trying to kick New York on the way out. Well, you just attack, or you could say you don't have real grit for New York. Well, you're just attacking me personally. Or, Or if I say, you know, here are the reasons why college might not be so good, you you might argue, oh, easy for you to say you went to college and now you're just trying to prevent other people from going to college. So this is just a, instead of dealing with my actual facts or arguments, you're you're dealing with you're just attacking me personally. As some as soon as someone attacks you personally, they've lost the argument. Always remember that personal attacks means you've lost the argument, which means you should never personally attack someone if you want to win an argument. Number two. Sometimes people argue from authority. Well, you know, Dr. Fauci said in March, don't wear masks. And then he said in April, wear masks. So you can't really argue from authority. You kind of just have to, what I tend to do is when I see, particularly when I see arguments for authority, uh, from authority in the media, is I try to look at the real source of the arguments and then see if they're really taking into account all the statistics. But in general, if someone says to you, 
well, I'm only saying this because, you know, uh, this general said we should go to war or this scientist said uh, this theory about vaccines, uh, then it's not good enough. You have to have, you have to look at lots of different examples of the science and the facts and the statistics and the tests. You can't just say, oh, well, this expert said it, so it must be true. All right, let me, let me list a few others. So here's one that Carl Sagan calls begging the question. So he gives us an example. We must institute the death penalty to discourage violent crime. That's a bad argument because you're arguing um, about why one should institute the death penalty, but you're assuming some other huge thing that needs to be proven, which is that the death penalty discourages violent crime. So it sort of like pushes the actual question onto something else. And you have to be careful when anyone is assuming an answer in order to prove something, you have to make sure they've proven the answer, not just assume it. So, you know, another one, and this is similar to um, what's called post hoc arguing. So arguing something after the fact. So all the time in the newspapers, they'll say the stock market fell yesterday because of fears about oil. Really? Was that the reason or did it just fall because sometimes stocks go up and sometimes stocks go down. So you can't, it's easy to argue something after the fact. If you say, oh, the stock market fell because of fears about oil, you have to, you have to basically say, well, let's measure fear and let's test the past 500 times people were afraid of oil and did the stock market fall in those days? That's how you would prove that statement instead of just assuming, oh, it's because of oil fears. I don't know. Maybe when people are afraid of oil, uh, the stock market will go up. I could prove that too. Like, oh, because oil will be cheaper and so companies will make higher profits. So the stock market goes up when there's oil fears. So if you can prove both sides of something using the same facts, that's similar to not being able to falsify a, a statement. Another argument is, uh, another method of arguing that people do poorly is observational selection. So I can say, oh, I'm great at predicting things because I predicted this, 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 but I am neglecting to tell you of all the times I failed to predict something. So for instance, at the beginning of this virus, I made several predictions. One was that it would peak by April 15th. That was in the US, that was mostly true. The other statement I made was that the virus would probably be over by June 1st. It was much lower, but it was not over. So I was wrong there. So I had a 50-50 uh, prediction rate on the coronavirus, which take it for what it is, but I'm not just selecting only the things where I was right and, and ignoring the places where I was wrong. So if somebody gives you a bunch of observations, you have to ask, well, tell me about when you were wrong too. This is an interesting one. It's called the false dichotomy. You know, so I went on a couple of uh, Black Lives Matter protests and one of the signs that I saw people carrying I don't think was a fair argument, which is that silence is violence. So if you don't say what your opinion is, then you dis the assumption is then you somehow that's violent, that, that you want people to be, you know, killed inappropriately at the hands of police. That's not true. I might be silent for many reasons about something. I might be silent about climate change because I just don't want to argue with people, or I might be silent about, uh, Biden or Trump because I really don't care about politics or I don't know enough or I have things that are more important to me than who's president of the United States. 
or I might be silent about, uh, you know, pro-life versus pro-choice because maybe I somehow believe in both things that I feel, you know, or I don't want to offend again, the people around me for whatever reason. So having this false dichotomy that you're either silent or you're against me or you're, or you want people to die is not really a good way to argue. It is a good way to argue, by the way, if you're trying to convince someone of something and they fall for the false dichotomy, like either you're with me or you're against me. No, I just might not care, but sometimes people don't have enough confidence to say that. Short-term versus long-term. This is an important thing to realize. Like for instance, people used to say this about the moon landing actually. Why are we spending billions to put somebody on the moon when we could be spending this money on, on feeding all the children or getting a better education for children. So again, putting someone on the moon might have nothing to do with education. It might not be that you had a choice. Uh, maybe you could do both. It's not necessarily the case that you only had to do one. So, the, you know, these two situations that are have nothing to do with each other, if you lop them in as if it's one or the other, that sometimes is you're making an argument that's inappropriate. A big one is confusing correlation and causation. So for instance, you could say, you've noticed that more college students are gay, so it must mean that college is making people gay. Now, obviously that's not true. Just because they're correlated doesn't mean college has caused people to be gay. For instance, a lot of senators are millionaires. Well, being a US senator doesn't make you a millionaire. They're just correlated. It might be the case that uh, millionaires have more time to run for office and more money to run for office with. So the correlation is actually reverse. So those are the main ways in which people have BS arguments. And again, if they, if anybody uses any of these arguments, like silence is violence, explaining things after the fact, assuming an answer or using authority, that's BS or, or the, the, the biggest way people argue with each other is with personal attacks. So I experienced this a lot over the past few weeks, which is that people thought I was wrong about something, but instead of addressing anything and this happens in relationships a lot too. Like someone might say to me, Hey, how come you never, uh, clean the house? And I might respond, why are you always yelling at me? So I'm using like a personal attack or why are you always getting angry over the smallest things? I'm using a personal attack to kind of deflect from the real argument, which is why don't I clean the house more. So soon, remember, as soon as someone uses a personal attack, they're wrong. That's a sign that they're wrong. So again, just to summarize, a lot of things in life are BS and are deceptive. So make sure you look for facts, make sure you're not just relying on authority, make sure you're not getting overly biased towards an idea just because it's your idea. Make sure you can measure anything that, you know, there's a book by uh, the venture capitalist and investor, uh, John Doerr, called Measure What Matters. So this is related to the whole point of quantify. Everything that's possible to measure, you should measure. So if I can say, oh, this employee is more profitable than this employee, well, measure how many, how much in revenues this employee brought in and how much you pay them, and then you know how profitable they are. And then you could actually quantify the profitability of each employee and figure out who is more profitable. And then there's always my favorite, which is Occam's razor, which is always choose the simplest solution uh, to any situation. Now, in terms of BS styles of arguing, there's the ad hominem attack, which is, you know, when someone insults you rather than addresses your actual facts, 
There's arguing after the fact. There's the excluded middle or false dichotomy, which is the, you know, relating to things that have no relation to, to each other. Oh, here's another one. It's the slippery slope style of arguing. Oh, you know, let's say, let's say your kid wants to try marijuana and you're like, no, you can't try marijuana because marijuana, next thing I know you're going to be, you know, shooting up heroin in, you know, in the middle of a dark alley. Well, we're not arguing whether they should take heroin or not. Your kid just wants to take a marijuana edible. Now, I'm not saying they should. I'm just saying to use the slippery slope argument is not a good argument. So what's another case? Well, let's say your child or your friend wants to borrow $100 from you because they ran out of money. Some people think, oh, if I lend him $100, next thing he's going to be asking for $10,000 and he'll never pay me back. Well, that's a slippery slope argument. He didn't ask you for $10,000. He just asked you for $100. So make sure you don't go down a slippery slope with your arguments. And finally, don't confuse correlation with causation. Anyway, that's uh, a summary of how to deal with BS. It's basically the baloney detection kit. And you could find it written about in Carl Sagan's book, The Demon Haunted World. And the chapter is titled The Fine Art of Baloney Detection. I hope I gave a little bit more color to it than he did. He just described the techniques and I tried to give examples. You know, I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, or if you have any questions, you could tweet at me at jaltacher on Twitter. And every Saturday, I'll try to give another kind of how-to or educational piece about either persuasion or entrepreneurship or writing or investing or any of the billion things I pretend to be an expert on. So I hope you enjoyed this. 